Welcome again to the Milt Rosenberg Podcast, Rosenberg Speaking, and speaking with an old friend who's at home on the phone uh, in South Bend or near it, Indiana, uh, namely Robert Schmuel. Uh, Robert, Bob, good evening. Good evening, Milt. Uh, let's first make clear that you are, of course, officially the chairman of American Studies at Notre Dame, and you have been that on and off for many, many years, though you go to various other Notre Dames. Uh, I discovered, looking at your uh, recent vita, there is a Notre Dame in Australia, apparently. There is, and there's a Notre Dame Center in uh, London, where I've taught a few times, and there's a Notre Dame Center in Dublin, where I've taught a few times. Yes, and I know lately you've turned your interest to Irish, the history of Irish politics. We might talk about that just a bit. But basically tonight, I want to hang loose and just kid around and wander around, uh, seeking your political wisdom, which I've always valued and admired, but I've got a special way of doing it. Uh, but before we even begin that, I can't resist asking you directly, as I would if you were in the studio, what do you make of what happened here yesterday politically, here meaning the city of Chicago? Uh, I think that uh, it was an important election. I think that the incumbent, Ron Emanuel, uh, won the most votes, but also suffered in the sense that um, it was a rather grave injury to the perception that he wants people to have about him. I think that um, to a certain extent, Mel, it is another reflection of what we're seeing around the country, which is a certain amount of tension, if not uh, combat, between the establishment wing of the Democratic Party and the more populist uh, wing of the uh, Democratic Party. Well, the man who uh, it will now run against him in the runoff about six weeks from this very moment that we're recording this discussion, uh, Chuy Garcia, uh, <clears throat> is classified as a progressive, as were the two other candidates who also ate up some of the votes, thus leaving uh, Emmanuel with only 45 percent rather than the 50% plus one vote that he needed to take the election. Uh, so you're right, the progressives are acting up. But does one call a guy like Emmanuel establishment? I guess he must be by virtue of having selected and then help, helped to elect the, president, the present president of the United States. Yes, and, and I think if you look at his uh, background, um, it would be one that, would be associated with the establishment. Um, they're going around calling him Mayor 1%. Uh, that certainly, um, it cuts two ways. One is that he's able to raise a good deal of money from those who uh, are also in the uh, 1%, but um, it cuts negatively in the sense that um, it makes the people who are in the middle class or lower uh, somewhat suspicious of him. What, what struck me, Melt, quite frankly, is the Chicago Tribune poll of a week or so ago that said that Rahm Emanuel uh, was taking 45 percent of the vote and that nearly 20 percent uh, seemed undecided. If you look at the results, uh, Rahm Emanuel got 45% of the vote. That means that he didn't grow at all 
from the time that that poll was taken. And the 20 percent of the undecided went elsewhere. That means that that is, in effect, uh, a negative vote against him. One of your 11 or 12 books, and one that you and I have discussed many times before, <clears throat> is uh, Statecraft and Stagecraft, colon, American Political Life in the Age of Personality. Uh, I will make so bold as to say that I find uh, the Rahm Emanuel personality not particularly charismatic and in some ways off-putting, as many members of Congress did when he was in Congress, poking his forefinger into their chest uh, to uh, uh, get them to uh, line up uh, on one or another particular vote. Uh, is it possible that this is partly a response to what we see of the man rather than to yeah. deeper politics? Uh, absolutely. And um, I, I'm not sure this is a moment to be perceived as the tough guy. Um, there are a lot of problems. You need to work on the problems. And you, uh, and by that I mean the figure who would be the mayor, you don't want to be the issue. You want to be working on issues. And as you suggest, he has one of those personalities that... Um, it's a bit abrasive. Uh, you could say that, yeah. And and everybody in, in uh, Washington certainly knew it when he was in Congress and then when he worked in the uh, Clinton White House and then later when he was with uh, the Obama White House. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew that... Um, when he talked, you didn't want a group of nuns around um, to hear his language. Um, and I think after a while, that kind of uh, figure tends to wear on uh, people. He did extraordinarily well, and you'll know all of this on his first run for uh, mayor. Um, but that certainly didn't uh, repeat itself uh, yesterday. You've had a long association <coughs> with the Chicago Tribune, uh, in whose building uh, we are sitting at the moment at the studios of WGN Radio. Um, and, of course, you know the work of Scott Stantis, uh, who came on as political cartoonist, I guess, about five years ago now. Have you met Scott? I have not, no. Well, but you've seen but, his cartoons, and you know absolutely. that his way of handling... A cartoonist always looks for some kind of image that um, cracks a joke, but at the same time has some authenticity and holds uh, as you represent a one or another political figure. And he has made him into the little ballet dancer, which is exactly opposite to that um, sort of hard-grained, tough political competitor and dominator that uh, is his uh, known persona. Right. But he was also a ballet dancer at some point. That's right. And that's what I was going to say is um, all of humor is based on incongruity. Exactly. And uh, even if you uh, don't know a person's past, uh, uh, ballet or otherwise, uh, just to see that um, makes you laugh. And it also um, puts in your mind a certain image about the figure and um, oftentimes you don't forget it. It may well be that cartooning is the cruelest profession of all. Uh, I would say that's an accurate statement. <laughs> yeah. uh, is this an accurate statement about you? Let me play with this a little bit. Uh, one remembers the fabled man at the museum who says, I know everything about art, 
but I don't know what I like. I sometimes think of you as a man who certainly knows everything about American politics and about political history far beyond uh, mere America, um, but doesn't know what he believes, or rather knows what he believes but won't easily and readily share it. One measure of that is the fact that you have said and you're not ashamed of this, you're rather proud of it, that you have never voted, or at least you don't presently, and for some time have not voted in any elections at all. Why is that? It is, um, I retain my virginity. Uh And by that I mean that uh, I'm often uh, asked, and you certainly asked as often as anyone else, uh, for me to say some things about, either a political convention or a State of the Union or whatever it was. And I always thought that it was my job to try to explain of what a figure was saying, how a figure was doing something. But never to endorse or reject, never to That's take right. a, a visible I mean, side. Uh, and I don't. And uh, I'll be very uh, candid, uh, Mel. I quit doing it in South Bend, where I am seated tonight, um, when our son got involved in uh, local politics, and I thought for the ethics um, that I would try to uh, have, uh, I cannot go on television or go on radio and talk about um, politics in this area anymore, because people might say, oh, he's saying that because his son is um, involved in it. So I thought the easiest way to solve that one was to um, just decline any uh, any overture to talk about politics uh, here. I would uh, readily accept, and this is my 10th year, of doing uh, radio uh, analysis for RTE over in Ireland. And... You know, I did their election coverage from Washington uh, in 2012. I've done any number of uh, different broadcasts uh, for them. I think it's quite open, and I try to be as fair and as uh, professorial, if you'll pardon the word. Um, I have to pardon to, that I've been guilty of it myself for many years. Well, I, uh, you were guilty more than anyone, uh, but... Um, You know, I think in a classroom you shouldn't uh, stand on a soapbox. I don't think when I'm trying to uh, explain how somebody is doing something or what's happening politically, I don't think people care so much about what I think uh, in a partisan way, but they possibly might want to think the historical context or where I think it might be leading in the future. But how then do you react? Uh, And I say a magical name which supposedly raises hackles in some quarters and uh, stirs tremendous enthusiasm in other quarters. Uh, Rush Limbaugh's characterization of the major portion of the American press as the mainstream media who are tilted far leftward or somewhat leftward and who simply do not do uh, the uh, the value-free or values put aside straight reportorial job that they that journalists are pledged to do do you agree with him that journalists should be in essence neutral in not and not reflect political preference and do you agree with him 
that many of them, far too many of them, do, and it's towards the left rather than the right. I will try to do this as uh, briskly as I can. I think that uh, there are different parts of every, uh, say, newspaper. I think there should be neutral news in the news section. I think that the opinion page ought to reflect strong opinions of uh, people. Let me quickly catch you out of the newspaper and onto media television, that is, into electronic um, right. dispersal so gets, of the that, news. And, and that gets more complicated, Milk, for the very simple reason that you're seeing a person who is talking, and that person often, use the fir- often uses the first person, and you begin to have trouble distinguishing between what the reporter is saying as a reporter and what the reporter might be saying as someone who is um, providing an opinion. Um, so I think you have to be uh, careful with that. Would you agree that when it comes to the cable news networks, yeah. MSNBC is decidedly on the left Absolutely. and Fox, New- and Fox yeah. News is decidedly on the right? Absolutely. And is that okay? It's a, it's a business decision more than anything. Um, and and you'll, you'll note that CNN, which is uh, in the middle, uh, has been um, struggling to find its audience for a number of years. Now you the, are a, you are a professor of journalism, and you, yeah. uh, you and you, many of your books deal directly with journalism and its achievements and its problems and its transformation in the media, the electronic or digital age. Um, has journalistic neutrality been rendered impossible by our entry into the digital age? Good question and hard to answer. In the The way I would respond is the following, that um, I think, yes, in a number of different areas, you find uh, opinion intruding, uh, particularly uh, on websites, uh, particularly in places that are fairly new in uh, origin and uh, becoming popular. you know, a BuzzFeed, uh, Vox, uh, things like that, that, um, you know, we hadn't, we, we had never thought about or talked about uh, three or four or five, six years ago. But um, what I think is most important is that people work on their own and find the kind of information that they find most nutritional, most satisfactory, provides the answers that they uh, want. Uh, but, but so often the, the information they go after is, um, they hope, will turn out to be tilted in the direction of their own political preference. A, a perfect case in point, a horrible case yeah. in point, uh, and he's a nice man and otherwise did very interesting work, and I've met him and enjoyed his presence, is Dan Rather, who wrecked his career by working very hard to prove that uh, George W. Bush had somehow falsified his uh, record of performance uh, in the Air and National Guard uh, and was caught uh, having, well, you know the whole story. You can t- sure. repeat it better than I. What, what was the final disclosure there? Well, the disclosure was that um, the material that he aired 
was uh, not of the uh, caliber that uh, should have appeared on a network broadcast. And it was falsified by using a typewriter that didn't exist at the time that the letter was supposedly written. That's correct. Yes. That's correct. And that wrecked that, that wrecked Rather's career, though. He's still sure. around and, trying to and do things. I think, as we speak, that the career of Brian Williams is, yes. uh, is probably, I don't want to say uh, near its end, but um, I find it almost impossible for him to uh, come back. Now, that's a curious one. That really is. <laughs> Cause you one, know what's curious, Milt? What's is curious that, is, the, is, is to find a motive. Uh, I know the motive. What is it? Uh, the motive is that a few years before Jay Leno retired, he asked the people at NBC if he could be considered as Jay Leno's replacement. When I read that, I had one thought, and that was, I'm afraid Brian Williams is more celebrity than journalist. My goodness. I didn't know that he had done that, as a matter yeah. of fact. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just today, going through some material, found the following quotation from Jay Leno. Politics is just show business for ugly people. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and you say stagecraft and... Uh, and stagecraft, uh, yeah. R- rather, and, stagecraft um, and stagecraft. No, I mean, there was a reason why he kept appearing on the late evening uh, uh, comedy shows, talk shows. Um, he really um, enjoyed it, was good at it, and all that. And when you do that, you know, you tend to want to be more of a celebrity and you talk maybe a little more loosely than um, uh, you should. And uh, bang, it gets you in trouble. Well, why should it end his career? A case that came to my mind immediately, and I won't use the name, but you know the name, I'm sure, is a well-known American historian um, in an Eastern college whose specialty is really the revolutionary period and uh, its major figures, and who's very, very highly regarded. Um, But then it suddenly appeared, or eventually appeared, that uh, in his personal life and in his classes before his undergraduate students, he often made mention of the fact that he had been a fighting soldier in Vietnam, when, in fact, he had been nothing of the sort. Uh, That brought some uh, disrepute upon him and some criticism, but uh, after an appropriate apology or whatever, and maybe a mention of visiting a psychiatrist, I don't know if he played it that way or not, but uh, he's still there, and he still writes books, and they're still very well regarded. In other words, that did not wreck an academic career. Why should it wreck a television news career? Because uh, Brian Williams' program was watched by 9 million people every night, and um, a sizable portion of that audience would forever wonder if what he said about uh, a story or himself was indeed uh, the truth. It's a different world when yeah. you're when you're publishing uh, a book that might have, uh, say, thirty to fifty thousand uh, readers, and you're doing lectures uh, in a college and all that. It is different from being the face of a news division at a major American network. 
Now, why did I give you a quotation? How did I happen to have a quotation from Jay Leno readily at hand? Because, because frank- we scripted all this. Well, because, frankly, I was um, thought I would do the following tonight, and if, you, if you'll play along, we will do it. I want to give you some quotations about politics, and so I went uh, looking for some and organized them, uh, and just get you free associating to them. Each of them contains either wisdom or falsity or both, and uh, leads you in one or another direction, talking and thinking about politics. So I'm going to start hitting you with some quotations and look for your answer within the space of a minute or two per answer. You ready? Ready. Here we go. Groucho Marx, of all people. Politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. Um, and the eagle or the uh, the duck descends, and uh, <laughs> we we have the whole picture of uh, the way that so many people uh, in America view politics. Is it a correct view in any sense? Oh, sure, absolutely, yeah. I mean, and we see it every day. Where do we see it right now, and how? Oh, I think we see it out in Washington primarily Mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, diagnosing a problem and diagnosing it incorrectly and and all of that. Um, You know, we have a long um, heritage in this country of looking down on our uh, political figures. Um, I think it was H.L. Mencken who said the only proper stance uh, is to look down at an American uh, politician. And um, again, it is part of our genetic makeup. And uh, we. what's interesting, Milt, uh, and this is more than you wanted for the one quote, but we keep looking for the savior. We keep looking for someone who is going to be different mm-hmm. and uh, make us feel good and do the right things and all that. And we uh, certainly saw that in 2008 with the election of Barack Obama. Um, I would hazard to say that um, in this country and in many places around the world, uh, the same opinion does not hold um, in 2000 or 2015. Well, in the case of Obama, I have to assume that you assume that if he were essentially the same man, but of different genealogy, and did not have a black father, he would not so readily and so quickly uh, mounted from a state senate to the presidency of the United States. I think that's accurate. I think that I think I think uh, that's accurate. I think that uh, his uh, oratorical skills are uh, terribly important. And I am one who thinks that that speech that he gave in Boston at the uh, 2004 Democratic Convention was probably his ticket to the White House. But the ticket to the White House was never really stamped because um, he became, as quickly as he occupied the White House, um, overly partisan. And not the figure who, you know, I see, um, I don't see a blue America and a red America. I just see the United States of America. People were longing for somebody to try to, uh, you know, uh, reduce 
the partisanship and the bickering and polarization and all that. And it just never played out. Why didn't people wonder about that uh, earlier on during the election when it was revealed that uh, his preacher uh, was uh, uh, extremely um, negative towards America and the American prospect? When it was revealed, as he himself did reveal in his autobiography, published before he even ran for office, uh, that his main mentor was a fellow in Hawaii who, uh, later on it was revealed, this Frank Marshall Davis, I believe it was the name, was a member of the Communist Party. Uh, When it was, um, when so much else was revealed about the work he did as a community organizer and his strong loyalty to the vision of Saul Alinsky, which was clearly a Marxist vision, um, why did that never play a role in the election itself? Why did John McCain choose to stay away from any of that material? That's a, that is a really good question, but the probably the more important one, uh, and it really swings back to what you were asking just a few minutes ago about the the media and potential bias. I would be one who would say that the mainstream media in America in 2008 fell in love with the story of Barack Obama. And by that I mean it was um, new, it was fresh, it was the completion of one of the important roads of America. And uh, they just, um, to a certain extent, um, covered him a little more gently than... uh, we saw with some others uh, in the past, and this is all on the record in terms of um, media analysis and scholarly studies that, let's face it, he got a break, and um, it helped him win the, uh, win the election. Um, but why McCain didn't um, exploit it more, um, you know, maybe he's more of a gentleman. Yeah, quite possibly. On to another quotation. Ready? Uh, From, of all people, Niccolo Machiavelli. And no, it's not, it's better to be hated, uh, or it's better to be feared than to be loved, and so on. It's not that one. It's this, most basic of all. Politics have no relation to morals. Mm. Um, I would say that there would be an awful lot of people who would uh, say that that is accurate. Um, you know, the old phrase, and you probably got it in your stack of uh, quotations about you don't want to see the um, uh, legislation made because it it uh, looks like uh, sausage making. It's quotations from Bismarck, of all people. Of all people. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, there would be... Uh, actually, this dovetails with what we were just saying about Brian Williams. Um when when it all happened, I said, geez, that's, that's exactly what Hillary Clinton did in 2008. Mm-hmm. She said she got off the plane in Bosnia and had to be whisked away because of the gunfire and all that stuff. And I said, you know, she got a pass. That didn't really injure her uh, 
campaign at that point. And a fellow who is a producer at NBC said, well, for God's sakes, Bob, she's a politician. We don't expect politicians to tell the truth. We do expect network anchors to tell the truth. And so, you know, what we hear from uh, a politician, what we uh, often see them uh, doing or, or whatever, you know, if, it, if it's crowding the edges of uh, morality, um, well, um, many of us are adults and can recognize that. But play this one through a little bit by remembering uh, JFK and his book, Profiles in Courage, yep. uh, assuming he really wrote it rather than Arthur Crock having written it for him, which in itself is an interesting problem. Um, and uh, I don't know the answer to that one. Do you, by the way? Well, I mean, his father was close to Crock and all of that. Uh, what is interesting about uh, Kennedy is if you do a study of him, he was really more well-known uh, for the PT-109 and for his writing than he was for being a member of the House or for being yeah. a uh, member of the Senate. But you see why I, why I raise uh, the book, Profiles and Courage. Yeah. In essence, uh, it is unsaying Niccolo Machiavelli, politics have no relation to morals. He's saying there are some men greater than most who in Congress, in, in office, will take the unpopular position because they know it to be the right or the intelligent position and because they are morally bound to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, surely Machiavelli can't be completely right about all politicians <laughs> and all of the decisions that they make. That no, there's no, moral, no morality operative in political choice. Don't, I, you know, that is an overstatement. Uh, that is hyperbole, but... Um, as with most of the uh, statements that I bet you have in front of you, there's a kernel of truth to them. Is there a kernel of truth in this, said by, of all people, Napoleon Bonaparte? In politics, stupidity is not a handicap. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, and I would be someone, in fact, I, I... was talking to a student after class today, and he said he was surprised he would be 21 years old, that so many of the posters around the Notre Dame campus have uh, either photos or references to Ronald Reagan. And he said, Professor, none of of my classmates, nobody here as a student was born. Uh, when Ronald Reagan was uh, was president, um, why do you think it is? And I said because um, he was perceived by Americans as a leader and could do things. But remember the the quotation of um, Robert McFarlane, who was his national security advisor, um, who said, and this is not a uh, an insult. I hope. I hope it's not perceived as an insult to Ronald Reagan. But he said um, he knows so little, but he accomplishes so much. Uh, And what he meant by that was his instincts. He knew. He knew America. He knew what he wanted to do uh, vis-a-vis taxes, vis-a-vis the communist threat. 
vis-a-vis a number of different things. Um, he didn't need to study the briefing books too closely. Um, you know, he he sort of uh, moved in his own direction of his choice and uh, made decisions that way. Recently, we did a podcast with Ken Ackerman, um, who uh, uh, did a book about Reykjavik and um, uh, and uh, the president, that is Reagan at Reykjavik with Gorbachev, right, uh, and. Uh, the tr- the struggle they had over uh, uh, nuclear issues and the deep disappointment with which Reagan left because he couldn't get Gorbachev to agree unless we let Gorbachev share uh, full access to our vaunted or projected uh, Star Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, uh, innovation even before it was really achieved. Have you seen that book? I have, what indeed, you- yes. Uh, what do you think about that time and those men uh, well, in that confrontation? That, yeah, I think it um, it's a hugely important uh, story. I would say, um, and it relates to your reference to statecraft and statecraft, if you do a study of the still pictures of the eight years of the Reagan presidency, the ones of Reagan and Gorbachev coming out at the very end of the summit is the only uh, collection of still photographs that I'm aware of that show him downcast, Mm -hmm. uh, frustrated, uh, not upbeat, I'm not happy. Um, Otherwise, he's very much engaged. Uh, But Reagan was... um, sort of shooting the moon and um, trying to work out the um, uh, negotiations and, and had in his mind where he wanted to, uh, to go, uh, but ultimately couldn't uh, pull it off. Quotation from Reagan, your reaction to it, please. It has been said that politics is the second oldest profession. I've learned that it bears a striking resemblance to the first. There you are. It's a very um, well-known quotation. A very well-known uh, quotation. Uh, typical Reagan. Um, he would be uh, someone who uh, was able to make not only fun of himself, but also um, of the uh, business that he was in. Um, and each time that he did that, he put himself... Uh, more and more on uh, the average person's level. And by being there and also being above them as the leader, uh, that was a recipe for success. Um, Speaking of um, men in high power, Charles de Gaulle certainly attained very high power and is a very fascinating figure in uh, recent political history. He says at one point, and indeed, here he's playing with another famous quotation, uh, which is, politics is too important to be left to the generals. I forget who said that. But de Gaulle says, politics is too serious a matter to be left to the politicians. And, and the, the, the quote that um, you, uh, I think, wanted to use is, war is too, be, is too well, important to be left I, to I the mi- I misspoke. War is too important war. to be left to the generals, yes. Right. 
Um, and that, uh, that fit with uh, de Gaulle. Um, he also said, how can you um, expect someone to govern a uh, country of oh, yes. 200, 246 cheeses? Yes. Uh, and, different, you know. and he was a great deceiver. One of the great moments of deception is de Gaulle on the balcony at, uh, I believe it's Casablanca, um, when there's all that clamor by, um, uh, by the uh, uh, resident French uh, in North Africa for uh, remaining French and against uh, the revolt that is stirring and deeply stirring all across North Africa, all across French North Africa. And he says to them, he's not yet president. He's thinking of running for president. He steps out on that balcony and he says to all of that shouting mob, Je vous ai entendu. I have understood you. And the great truth about that matter is, yes, he did understand them, and they did not understand him. Because later on, he makes perfectly clear, he had to seem to yield to that clamor for eternal French identity in North Africa as a way of attaining the presidency so he could end eternal French involvement Mm -hmm. in North Africa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably uh, one of the most vain uh, people that was ever created. Um, I happened to be living in France in 1968, in the spring of 68, when Mm -hmm. uh, you had all the upheaval. Um, oh, yes. School, schools closed, the trains on strike, most everything uh, shut down. And de Gaulle would um, have to give speeches to sort of keep the, uh, the country going. And he got to one speech in particular, and he always needed to wear glasses when he um, uh, read something. And so what he did is he rigged it with the French television to show a still black and white picture of him. And he put on his glasses and read into a microphone exactly what he wanted to say so he didn't screw up uh, a single word. That is a vain person. Hmm. And um, a well-tamed public who were able to take all of that. They did for, really, though, Milt, uh, he's gone in a year after 68. Uh Uh-huh. And he's a shadow of himself. But when you say interesting, complicated, important, all of that is true. There's a book, and, you know, somebody should write it, about the the whole relationship between de Gaulle, Churchill, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah. Who was it that said... um De Gaulle uh, reminds me of nothing so much as an ostrich uh, surprised in its bath. Mm. I don't know what in the world that really means, but it's a, <laughs> but it's a, it's a vivid image. It's either yeah. Churchill or somebody around Churchill. Mm-hmm. It's at that time oh, yeah. in London I mean, when De Gaulle is so unpopular, even right. though he's the leader of the Free French. Right, and he was in London the whole time. Yeah. yeah. Um, Harry Truman, you want a friend in Washington? Get a dog. Get a dog. Yep. What was bothering old Harry? Um, everything was bothering. Uh, you know, he'd give hell to 
anyone. But uh, no, I think what he was uh, what he was saying was that uh, Washington is a collection of uh, egomaniacs, and I don't think that's too strong a word. Uh, ambitious people, um, always out for themselves, uh, by and large. Um, a dog becomes um, your only friend and companion. Hmm. But was he really... I still don't get it. I don't get why he's so sour on the nature of politicians when he's been a politician all of his life. That's true. Uh, also a haberdasher, but uh, an yes. unsuccessful one. Um, he just... Uh, what he's uttering is that... Um, so many of the people in Washington are out for themselves and improving their standing and, and trying to uh, do the things that will get them on the next rung of the ladder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that you, that you, there really isn't that human dimension to the interaction. Fascinating. Now, was it ever thus? Is homus politicus americanensis only a late variant of homus politicus generally. Are political men marked by what um, modern uh, psychologists might call a touch of sociopathy, uh, an eagerness for preferment, for advantage, for popularity, sure. uh, I mean, and willing to, uh, willing to cross many lines to get it? Absolutely. And, and here you, um, you know, one of the most fascinating uh, things that I've, tried to keep up with or or sort of, you know, what are, what are presidents really like? Um, And you look around and uh, somebody like Bill Clinton, I mean, it's so easy to explain his activities um, beyond the White House or even within the White House. Um, This deep, yearning to uh, be accepted, to be um, favored, and and all of that stuff. Well, it manifests itself personally, but it also uh, shows up politically. He wants to be loved when he's given a speech in front of 400 people. Uh, Somebody like Richard Nixon, much more complicated, I would argue, Um, It was said that he would uh, go out campaigning, and the first thing he would do is race to a uh, men's room so that he could wash the the people off of him. Um, And, you know, you're in this very weird position of here is somebody who has devoted his entire life to politics, and yet he doesn't much like people. Hmm. Those are just two. I mean, I can go on, but... Um. No, it's a fascinating area. What really are politi- men of, and women, I suppose one has to say as well now, seriously, uh, of political attainment like? What do they have that gets them there when you and I haven't got there, even if we wanted to? Um, no, we wouldn't know uh, quite what to do. And, and Milt, I'd, I'd offer this. Do we want to? Do we want to do the... Uh, chicken dinners uh, in the uh, KSC Hall uh, for four nights a week. I was once actually asked to run in um, a primary 
for the Democratic nomination in the second district of New Hampshire. It's wow. When I, it's when I was teaching at Dartmouth. Just some guys, every two years, the sacrificial candidate for those who were considered to be um, properly liberal, uh, as I fear I was in those days and no longer am, um, uh, the, the, the standard sacrificial right was to get one of those guys to run in the primary. He would never win the primary, let alone win the seat, which was always, in those days, very safely Republican. Um, but even so, I was asked, and it was very titillating and very exciting for a while. I discussed it with my wife. I was sort of full of myself with the notion, that I, which had never occurred to me, of suddenly being a, a, a person of political uh, prominence. And then I laughed. I laughed and laughed, and it all seemed utterly ridiculous. I could never do, I could never play that game, or I could never go out and do that sort of thing. Right. And so I, I, I let, let that cup pass me by. The closest I came, Milt, was back in 1976, Gene McCarthy was running an independent campaign for the presidency. Mm-hmm. And I had been in Washington for a talk and somehow had met him and gone out to dinner with him. And young, naive, as I was then and no longer am, um, I say to him, because he's driving me back to the hotel, I said, well, Senator, if I can do anything for you, just let me know. And a week later, some people of his came to see me and said, would you run for vice president uh, with Gene McCarthy in Indiana? And what he was doing was picking uh, one person to run as vice president in every state where he was on the ballot. And I always thought, what a great job to run around Indianapolis at a mall and saying, hi, I am running for vice president of the United States from Indiana. If that wouldn't fool people, I don't know what would. Fascinating. But uh, that is as far as I went. You did not accept the invitation? I decided at the age of, I think I was 28 or Uh, so. I wasn't even close to 35. I couldn't have been the president, although I, of course, longed to be that. Um, I thought I should probably finish my Ph.D. I've known you for many years, but I've never known about this. It yeah. puts, puts you in a new light. Uh, let me go on with these, some of these quotations. Um, here's somebody that you've done a whole book on. I do, I do not yet have the book or have not read it. I guess it's been published for a few years. In fact, I've just discovered that you've done it, and I want to get a copy of it. Thomas Jefferson. Whenever a man has cast a longing eye on office, a rottenness begins in his conduct. Same issue. Hmm. That goes, yeah, I mean, uh, that's close to the Machiavelli quote, right? I guess. Yeah, I mean, um, again, the, um, not not the suspicion, the awareness of human uh, conduct. And uh, politics tends to uh, really um, sort of magnify it. We're, we're into Lord Acton's territory. Politics tends to correct. We're getting close. Yeah. We're, we're painfully close. Yeah. Yeah. I note that the actual title of your work, which I very much want to see, is Thomas Jefferson, colon, 
America's philosopher king. Is he a philosopher king in the platonic sense? Was that his own conception of yeah, himself? Yeah, it is. And, and I should um, uh, not really take full credit. Um, Milt, you know that uh, I was close to Max Lerner. Yes, I do. And he had left that uh, manuscript. And ah, mm-hmm. several uh, chapters uh, were unfinished, and I might have... Um, done a little work on them and wrote the introduction and things like that. I would not take the uh, credit for the book, which, um, to Max's great credit, um, was well-reviewed when it came out. In fact, it was brought out in a uh, second edition last year. Oh, then it's a book actually um, with him as author rather than you? That is correct. I see. I didn't realize that. I still find it interesting and would love to see it. Um, Lyndon Johnson, here's another president talking about being president. Being president is like being a jackass in a hailstorm. There's nothing to do but to stand there and take it. And now you know the meaning of hail to the chief. (laughs) Um, I mean, uh, there are a whole list of uh, statements by uh, uh, presidents about how difficult... uh, the the job is it's lonely um it is um so uh imprisoning that's another word that uh, that they use about yeah. the uh, presidency and when you think about it that that lyndon johnson would say that um he of you know the masterful um conduct when he was the head of the senate um, and then goes into the presidency and is running that uh, full tilt. And yet he had that um, that sort of feeling about it. And a little idle gossip on the side. Um, we all know that um, uh, a great work on him that will run to four or five volumes is still being written by Robert Caro. He's been working on just about a whole lifetime on it. Right. Uh, right. And I note just from... Uh, the Sunday Times of a few days ago, that there's a new book on Johnson by, of all people, uh, Joseph Califano. And it's sort of his memoirs of working in the White House. Oh, is that it? I see. He was the domestic advisor. To be sure. Yeah. And uh, I think he's uh, wanting to put things on the record. And, uh, I mean, with... So it's not a challenge to Caro's monumental ambition? no. I think it is uh, not. My guess it's uh, quite uh, positive about uh, mm. Lyndon Johnson, but Carol's is the, you know, the sprawling biography, and everything that Lyndon Johnson ever did is in that. Um, I must uh, hit the high uh, level in these quotations by going to someone universally admired these days, even though they now catalog him as a father of conservatism, though others argue that wasn't his, that wasn't what he meant at all. Um, I don't know. It's Edmund Burke I'm talking of who says, and this is quite well known also, when bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Hmm. You know that one? Yeah, that's powerful stuff. He yeah. was an Irishman, you know. And you're you're becoming one, apparently. Well, um, I will be one next year. Let's say it you're like going that. to be there. I know you're doing another book 
uh, on some aspect of the of the troubles. Um, but um, Burke there sees politics itself, or at least public affairs, as a struggle between good and evil, and fears that evil wins far more often because good men don't take up uh, the fight as they should. That and that. Um again, is sort of a refrain of what we've been uh, saying, that, um, you know, it's a um, difficult kind of business. And the good people, and this is a a generalization, and your listeners might uh, take uh, some offense, and I don't mean that, but um, good people would tend to be a, a little more sensitive about what they say and what they uh, would do. And um, the others um, who might be sort of focused on getting from point A to point B might uh, take a shortcut um, here and there to, uh, to do it. And that is just part of the um, political animal. Mm-hmm. Well, there he is, the political animal. You've been looking at him and her for a long time, uh, you were not tempted to become <laughs> the Indiana running mate of um, Senator McCarthy, and nor are you tempted for any other political office. How do you? Re- Let's come directly to the present political moment in the United States, and I'll give you one last quotation from P.J. O'Rourke, who says, "The good news is that, according to the Obama administration, the rich will pay for everything." The bad news is that, according to the Obama administration, you're rich. <laughs> uh, and that might dovetail with what you were saying earlier about Rahm Emanuel and how he's perceived. Explain. Uh, in the sense that um, it is possible that his biggest hurdle will be that um, uh, the people who would be uh, less well-off will look at him and say, geez, he is in the camp of the, uh, of the rich, and I am not, and I'm going to go for that other guy who sort of seems a little more uh, regular. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, one of the things to watch in Chicago is um, is Barack Obama going to come back and try to help Rahm Emanuel? Uh-huh. Or will uh, Rahm Emanuel say, gee, I didn't get a bump at all from uh, his visit last week when he designated the Pullman area as a national uh, monument? Um, is he somewhat radioactive, as he certainly was in the 2014 midterms, and does that radioactivity extend to uh, my campaign to uh, win re-election? There's a local talk show host who's uh, got a lot of attention over the last year or two. He's a former member of Congress, one term, Joe Walsh. You know him? No. Well, he's an outspoken... No, I do know him from his one term, yeah. Yeah, and he's an outspoken uh, Tea Party uh, conservative uh, who's very upset at uh, how establishment-oriented most of his party is. And he was saying only 
earlier today, because I listened to him doing this in response to yesterday's election, that this shows uh, that the progressives uh, are really revolting within the Democratic Party, uh, just as um, they uh, are doing within the Republican Party, uh, different kinds of progressives with different kinds of deviants. Uh, and he thinks that uh, this uh, failure by Emmanuel to get the majority on, in this field of four suggests that um, a big trouble of that sort is now coming uh, to the Democratic Party. Uh, though I don't know whether he's right, yeah. because it seems to me Obama himself, in terms of program, represents as far left as you can go in democratic politics. But um, I don't think, Milt, that uh, people would say that he is anywhere near where uh, Elizabeth Warren is. Well, there is, yeah, there, go ahead. There is a difference. I mean, that's why so many people are uh, clamoring for her to get in the race against Hillary Clinton is because uh, they perceive uh, Hillary Clinton to be too much of an establishment slash Obama figure. And Elizabeth Warren is much more of a feisty, energetic, populist uh, kind of figure. And what's interesting about the, the Warren and Hillary Clinton is if you look things up, um, they're not that different in age, one mm -hmm. or two years different. And yet the, the image that Elizabeth Warren has is of this energetic and fiery kind of uh, individual, whereas Hillary is... Um, you know, seems a little bit uh, uh, more mature or uh, however you want to say that. Well, we've known her for quite a long time. Well, we've certainly known her since um, the early 1990s. Since she uh, announced with some uh, slight disdain, I'm not here to make cookies. That is, and I'm not um, sitting here by my man like Tammy Wynette. Yeah, but indeed she did stay by her man, did she not? She did indeed, through um, thick and thick. And does that work against her in the long run? Or oh, does it, no. or does oh, it command not, her? Not at this point, for the simple reason that um, uh, the most recent polling that I saw um, showed that he was the most popular political yeah. figure in this country. Let me turn to the country as we end... Let's yeah. take the last five minutes, if we can, to ask whether politics uh, potentially provides an answer to our troubles. Because I think, and here I'm speaking certainly in the honest accent of my own um, depression, if you will. It's a public depression, a political depression, rather than, I hope, an individual one. But I think it looked pretty bad to me. F for first and foremost is the decline, the, de the destruction of the American family. Better than... Uh, close to half of American kids now are born out of wedlock. Uh, in the black sector of the population, it's something like 75%. In the Hispanic sector of the population, it's over 60%. Uh, and it's uh, over 35% uh, in the white sector of the population. Beyond that, yes, we're maybe showing some economic recovery. But uh, uh, things are rather frozen 
for many people, and there is really a gross disparity between the truly wealthy and uh, the truly poor, of whom there still are quite a number, and the struggling uh, people who are sometimes called middle class, sometimes called Lord knows what. The middle class is used uh, as a generative term for all sorts of people uh, who would not have been so designated sociologically. But there are lots of people who still have some trouble making ends meet. And the economy favors some mightily, but in some ways it seems rather unstable. And there's a lot of social pathology of the usual variety, including, of course, the largest in proportion criminal population in prison in the world, quite possibly. Um, this doesn't look like necessarily a uh, fully functioning, totally um, uh, benign uh, republic. What do you think? And will it become better or le- or worse? I, I, and I haven't even mentioned the external threats, uh, which, of course, uh, have been much elaborated on this podcast program as, a, have, as they have been every place else. But please go ahead. Sure. Um, I would say that until we figure out some um, more workable way of uh, seeing Washington function, um, we are in deep trouble. Uh, and by that I mean, Milt, it's, it's more than just the um, uh, bickering and, and taking sides and, and all of this. Things are just not working. And the people see that. And that's um, back to that earlier point that um, what Barack Obama offered in 2004 and, and during his campaign was, I've got a different way. I can do this. I can uh, bridge uh, the divides and, and all of that. That's what we're looking for. And um, and George Bush, George W. Bush, tried to promise it, you know, I'm a compassionate conservative, I'm going to do the right things for people and all that, and uh, an awful lot of Americans didn't think that worked out well. Uh, today, I would argue that there are an awful lot of Americans who would say the same about Barack Obama. That didn't work out uh, well. But we've got to get uh, down to business where, you know, to me, uh, one of the deepest failings of Barack Obama is his reluctance to spend time with uh, members of Congress, uh, to meet with uh, Republican leaders on a uh, continuing basis, to have some sort of of constant communication. Certainly, uh, Lyndon Johnson had communication with with people uh, and worked it and worked it and worked it. Um, I think we've got to do that. Uh, otherwise, the conditions that you articulated so well, I don't see them getting uh, any better in the uh, near or uh, long term. But we are told, and I don't remember where the quotation comes from, it may well be biblical, put not your trust in princes. Can uh, Your focus in what you've just been saying is on the failings of a particular man who is president. I totally agree with your evaluation of him. But even if we had a much better president, uh, social change follows its own rules and follows its own path. I think we might very well be at the same place, for example, with regard to the state of the American family. Even if 
we had had a president who dealt much more openly and in a much more cooperative way with the rest of Congress. Okay, and and we're probably, you know, I tend to focus on the political, and, and you're much more... Uh, uh, sociological? Sociological, and sure. I mean, and, um, you know, I can... I can I can scope out what I think would be the uh, the biggest failings uh, in terms of uh, getting public policy into action, and maybe that public policy would help in terms of social problems. And finally, what we're left with is people who do things. Uh, yeah. soci- sociology is just a summation of um, somehow the lives and the uses made of the lives uh, of their lives by individuals, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're still waiting for the great man. And what what's very curious, and you and I talked a little bit about this uh, yesterday, um, is that um, we are in this very interesting position as a country where our last three presidents, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, both elected to two terms, mm-hmm. um, and uh, both of them, uh, or all three of them, will will probably serve out those uh, those terms. That's only happened one other time in our history, and that was way back um, from about 1801 until 1825, and that was Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe, uh, all of the same party, all Virginians. Um, you know, friends among themselves. And yet you have Bill Clinton, a Democrat, George W. Bush, a Republican, and then Barack Obama, a Democrat. So there's no continuity uh, except in having presidents who have served uh, two terms. And yet what I would say is each of those had grave difficulties during the second term. Certainly it was the case with Bill Clinton. He was impeached. Uh, Certainly in terms of public opinion and approval, uh, George W. Bush had uh, problems really from Katrina on. And then Barack Obama, who certainly if you take the results of the 2014 midterm, um, was not exactly uh, someone who had uh, the coattails that helped the people in his party. So it's a very, very strange political time, but you're saying it is a uh, socio-political circumstance that uh, we all ought to be uh, cognizant of. Uh, Robert Schmuel, I thank you so much for joining us. As we close, um, I've been hitting you with quotations from all over the place. Surely you must have one that sustains you or that you turn to because somehow, if you don't fully comprehend its utter meaning, it still seems somehow to uh, contain resonating and, uh, uh, and consoling wisdom. What is your... Um, give it to me, whatever it is. I think as it, a close. Uh, oddly enough, uh, Milt, would be the Machiavelli, it's better to be uh, uh, feared than loved. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I think that um, we have seen it in the long tradition of Chicago uh, politics, uh, maybe not in, in uh, the 
current case, but I think probably in the current case, too. Um, but there is a fine line, and you have to, uh, as Machiavelli said, be be both uh, lion and fox mm-hmm. in terms of uh, working in politics. You've got to roar, and you've got to, uh, you know, pounce, uh, but you also have to be foxy and uh, figure out a way of getting um, what you want accomplished. Well, you haven't been foxy tonight. You're not foxy, Grandpa. You are wise uncle, and I thank you so much for joining us. 